Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. Today we've got two legendary guests. We got Jack Canfield and Patty Aubrey. Jack is a pioneer in the field of personal development and peak performance, founder of the Billion Dollar Chicken Soup for the Soul Publishing Empire, multiple New York Times bestselling authors. One of my favorite is the Success Principles. Pick that one up. 2.5 million subscribers and followers on social media sold 500 plus million books worldwide, and he's a Harvard graduate with a master's degree in psychological education. Our second guest is Patty Aubrey. She's the president of the Canfield Training Group. She's overseeing the growth of the publishing industry's first billion-dollar brand, Chicken Soup for the Soul. And she's also created a multi-billion dollar training company around the success principles that Jack Canfield initiated. Patty has expanded these live trainings and coaching programs to 108 countries and prepared thousands of emerging success trainers for professional careers in the transformational field. She's also a number one New York Times bestseller and is the current CVO for Goal Friends. Let's get started. Let's welcome them to Brilliant Thoughts. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success podcast. And I'm your host, Tristan Omana. And today I've got two special guests with me, Patty Aubrey and Jack Canfield, both of them from Chicken Soup for the Soul, a household name. Welcome, both of you. Very happy and excited to have you on. Thank you. Excited to be here. Awesome. Well, look, the last time we talked, or maybe the previous time we talked before that, Jack, I'm going to start with you because you mentioned that you have history with success enterprises. Can you tell me about that? Because I was really surprised. Well, if we go way back to the beginning, I worked for a man named W. Clement Stone in Chicago. And at that time, W. Clement Stone, he was a good friend of Napoleon Hills. He was publishing Success Magazine. The original magazine, it was about the size of a Reader's Digest back then. And, uh, you know, the editor of that magazine, Ogmandino, uh, actually worked in the same building I was working in when I was working for W. Clement Stone. So I think I was on the third floor and he was on the fifth floor. And I would occasionally run into him. And one night I went up to his floor and he was still there and we had a long conversation. And I read that magazine religiously uh, ever since. Uh, and so it goes way back to then. And back then, you know, today it's it's a lot more, I, I don't know what you call modern. There's a lot more, uh, you know, different kinds of articles. Back then there was kind of the classic motivational, you know, people, the acres of diamonds and, you know, those kind of Napoleon Hill type things. But it was very, very exciting. So, yeah, I've been around this field since my mid-20s. And that's where it all started was with, with one of Napoleon Hill's favorite friends and the Success Magazine being published right in the same building I was working in. That's pretty cool. And now we're back. We're back here in success, <laughs> this time in the digital world. And Patty, how did you end up working with Jack? What's that whole story like? Did you guys always know each other? No, no. We met uh, when I was 24 and I actually answered an ad in the LA Times that said Secretary Wanted. And so I was one of probably 200 people that re responded to the ad because it said 25,000 a year. And back then that was a lot. And as much as I didn't want to be a secretary, I thought, well, 25,000, you know, it's the number. That was my goal. That was what I was envisioning. So I interviewed with him and um, I think I interviewed with you, Jack, in July. And then you called me back might've been in May or June. And then you called me back in September and you said, you know, the gal that I hired didn't work out. Can you come back to work for me? I was like, oh. sure. Now you tell me, I mean, I could have probably not gotten married to the first person because Jack would have been there to say, wait, 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 before you do this, <laughs> I got married in July and probably got divorced in October. Um, so yeah, that was 31 years ago that I came on board. It was before chicken soup. 
Nice. So look, let's let's talk a little bit about chicken soup because I think that's where that's where the magic started happening, right? So how did you two start working together in regards to chicken soup? Is it something that Patty you brought up or or Jack you brought up and said, "Hey, I have an idea for this book." Or how did that happen and how did that formulate? Well, Patty was working for me, kind of running the office, doing all of that and being my assistant. And I was running around the country doing workshops and seminars and trainings. And uh, I was I always used a lot of stories in my work. I started teaching in an all black high school in Chicago way back when, uh, Mm -hmm. right, right before I met Stone, actually. And so what was happening is that I realized whenever I was telling a story, the kids would really pay attention. And when I was talking about concepts and history, <laughs> it got the window, you know. So I thought, well, stories are good. So I started using that in all my work. And then one day for about a month, every talk I gave, someone would come up and say, that story about the puppy you told, or that story about the Girl Scout who sold 3,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies in one year, that story about the mm. one-legged guy who climbed Mount Everest. Is that in the book anywhere? My daughter needs to read it. My staff mm. needs to hear it. And I keep going, no, 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 no. And one day I'm coming back on the plane from Boston to LA, where we both worked at the time, at Patty mm-hmm. and I. And uh, I just went, it was like, wow, it just struck me. I'm supposed to put all these stories in a book, you know? So I made a list on the plane on the way home. I think there were about 70 stories that I was telling. And I thought, well, that's enough for a book. And so I started, the commitment was to write two a week. And if at the end of a year, I'd have 100 stories. And so, and Patty, I would basically write them by hand or type them very badly. And then Patty would you know, type them again. And then we'd let it sit for a week and I'd edit it again. And I think Patty will tell you, we probably retyped that book six times because we kept editing it and editing it and editing it. And one of the things very few people know is that it, by the time we were done, I met Mark Victor Hansen, our co-author, probably when I had about 70 stories. And we were mm-hmm. having breakfast and he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm working on this book. And he said, I, I, I want to write that with you. And I said, that's like telling James Michener, you want to finish the book Hawaii with him, which was a great bestseller when he's written three quarters of the book. Why would I let you do that? Yeah. And he said, well, number one, I'm a better marketer than you are. We'll sell more books. And number two, at least 10 or 15 of the stories you tell you stole from me. So basically you should let me do it. <laughs> so, so I said, yes. So we ended up having about 121 stories. Now we wanted to get it back to 101. And we asked, you know, Patty, her family, our staff, everyone was reading these stories, grading them on a scale of one to 10. That's how we came up with the, you know, the top graded stories. And as Patty will tell you, uh, we uh, she, we were working with one of those little tiny Apple computers that looked like a shoebox and had a little tiny screen where the letters were green. She's typing this thing over and over and over again. Uh, But that's how it all got started. That was a Mac 20. Mac 20. 20. A Mac 20. I'm going to you. What story sticks out from those 101 that you guys originally uh, brought it down to? Oh, gee, let me see. We did 250 titles. So you really want to remember one of the first ones? <laughs> what's, your, I, what's your favorite story? Oh, gosh, there's so many. But I think the one that I remember at 2.30 in the morning as I was sitting in my little condo up in Valencia typing away uh, was a cute little story. And it was um, this woman is driving and she gets in an accident. And she's freaked out and she goes into the glove compartment and there's this envelope and it says in case of accident. And Mm -hmm. so she opens it up. It's a note from her husband. He says, honey, in case you're reading this, you've obviously been in an accident, but remember it's you I love, not the car. And so it was just tons of things like that. And I remember calling three people at 2.30 in the morning saying, I got to read you this story. (laughs) Why are you waking me up for what? You know, I I don't think I can call Jack because I think it probably wouldn't have gone over well. But um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many stories from different different people. And I love that that one, though. Yeah. That that just gives me an idea of what to do as well. I mean, geez, why not do that if you're married? Right. That's exactly. Yeah. Save That's a, little, a really good one. Save a little stress for sure, right? I love that. And Jack, what about you, man? What story stands out from the the hundreds you've written together? Well, there's a lot of them, but the one I love to tell that kind of became my favorite radio interview story back then 
was about this little boy who's uh, walking through the mall and he sees a sign on a store. It's not a pet store. It's just a normal retail store. It says puppies for sale. So the little boy walks in and he says uh, to the guy behind the counter, he says, uh, mister, uh, it says you got puppies for sale. He says, yes, I do, son. He says, can, can I see them? And the man says, sure. And he whistles. And out from behind the, there's a little door. Out comes this uh, dog named Lady with about five teeny tiny balls of fur behind her. And one of the balls of fur is limping. And the boy says, well, how much are you charging for those, those puppies? He said, well, about $50. And he says, well, I got $3. And he's counting the change. And he says, $3.57. If I give you that down and pay you a dollar a week, would you sell me one of the puppies? Now the guy is in love with the kid already. He says, sure, kid, if you want to, I'll do that. And so at that point, okay. he says, which one do you want? He says, I want the one who's limping. He says, you don't want that puppy. He's never going to be able to run and jump with you like the other puppies. You know, he has a bad mm -hmm. hip socket when he was born. The vet said he'd never be able to walk like a normal puppy. And he mm -hmm. says, no, but that's the one I want. He says, well, if you want that one, I'll give him to you for free. And he says, no, I don't want to get him for free. I want to pay full price. That puppy's worth just as much as all the other puppies. And the guy says, well, why would you pay full price for that one? And why do you want that one? And the boy reached down and he pulled up the pant leg on his left leg and it revealed a badly twisted left leg with a leg brace on it. Mm. He said, well, you see, mister, I don't run and walk so well myself. And that little puppy is going to need someone who understands. And I, that, when I read that story the first time, I just got like my whole body got chills, you know, and teared up in my eyes. And so those are these stories that just they open your heart and they, they, they awaken your spirit. And that's really what they were meant to do. That's true. I could definitely see both of those being pretty impactful. All right. Yeah. So now you've written these stories, you've packaged them together, and you decide to, to now put them out there. Success leaves clues. Both of you have told me that, and it's in your books. What would someone listening to this be able to apply from that journey that you had from thinking you might be able to do this to actually achieving more than you ever imagined? Well, I'll start with the fact that the success leaves clues was what we were working with. And I said, okay, who's got best-selling books out there that I think I can get access to? So I knew John Gray, who'd written Men Are From Mars. I knew Ken Blanchard, who'd written The One Minute Manager. I knew um, the guy who'd written a book called The TM Book. Um, so I called up all these people and Scott Peck, uh, who'd written The Road Less Traveled. And Scott's book had been on the New York Times list for 12 years. It's the longest running book that ever Whoa. was on the list, one, one book. Tim Ferriss, I think, had a book on there for like five years, you know, his first four-hour work week. Yeah. And I called all these people up and I said, okay, you're bestsellers. You know how to do it. Tell me what to do. And they all gave me great advice, but the best was from Scott Peck. And he said, do three interviews a day, every day for the first year, and one interview a day, every day, forever, you know, after that, until the book literally falls out of, you know, style. So we did that. And sometimes we did six interviews a day, seven interviews a day, sometimes 10 oh, wow. interviews a day. And the idea was people can't buy your book if they don't know it exists. And so, you know, and today it's even worse. You know, I read there's 600,000 books a year published in the world and only about 600 books ever make the New York Times list in a year, about 60 at one time. And so you're up Whoa. against a lot of noise, if you will. So you've got to let people know you exist. You have to be able to talk about it in a way. So I would say today, uh, you know, you either do a lot of podcasts, which there are a lot of. We call mm -hmm. this wide and shallow. You know, you don't, if you do a podcast, you might sell 50 to 100 books if you're lucky, maybe 20. Now, if you get on some of the bigger podcasts, you know, uh, you, some people have million viewers now, then yeah, you definitely do that. You can sell a lot of books. When I was on Oprah, we sold uh, 20,000 books in the next week, you know, so yeah, that, <laughs> that's, that's tough to do. Tough to do. And, but then, it, it, so I'd say, you know, do a lot. Mark and I, we talked at every church that would let us come and, and do a talk and sell books in the back of the room or in their bookstore. We uh, went to Patty actually sold books out of the back of her car. You want to talk about that, Patty? Whoa. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, working with Jack and Mark together was an interesting dynamic, Tristan, because Jack is really, really grounded. And Mark is like this giant balloon. 
And so I want to allow that to have both their brains, which is good. Over the years, it goes back and forth. But it was just like we all had to do something called the rule of five every day. And so I was always thinking about if somebody came in to sell me a book, I was selling it back to them. If I'm sitting in the hair salon, I'm thinking, all these women are here. They all read books. Maybe I should bring a box of books. And so I started looking at hair salons, nail salons. I I actually went to the uh, swap meet out in... um, I don't know, out in Valencia somewhere, sort of that area up by Magic Mountain. And I had my Dodge Colt hatchback and it was hot as hay, you know, just really hot out. And I'm sitting there trying to hawk these books and no one's looking at me. And so finally I just started reading out loud and kind of following someone because they, they would both say, come on, kid, fake it till you make it. Visualize it as real. And so I'm just believing it because I have no opinion. I'm so young. So I'm just doing the stuff that they're telling me to do. They weren't with me, by the way, just for the record. Wait, Jack so was with you too? people no, 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 he wasn't. Oh, okay. I said just I was for the record, say, he was not. Okay, okay. Um, so I like walk really up close with somebody and some people would run away and then some people kind of stop. And I'm like, wait, what is that? So I sold a few books of the swap meet, but I realized swap meets weren't the best place to sell book. Neither is a NASCAR race, which we tried that one out too. Um, but yeah, it was really looking at where, where can we go that no one else is so we can stand out. Mm, and so that was one of the that. things that, Jack had learned through interviewing a lot of people on what what things did you do right? What did you do wrong? So we did a lot of research beforehand, but we just got really creative and thought, you know, why not? It was, it was something I could do. I wasn't out on the road. I was really in the office making sure that we were getting everything else done. And um, so we, we, we had, we had Patty said anywhere where people had to wait. So nail salons, hair salons, chiropractic offices, doctor's offices. We even had a guy in Boston who had a bakery who, who would put books up on his shelf where he's selling donuts and bread and stuff. And people would say, what, what's this book doing here? And he'd say, well, this is the book, <laughs> best book since sliced bread, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> and then people would buy the book and we tried everything, you know, any idea we had. And we did buy a book called a thousand and one ways to market your book by a guy named John Kramer, K-R-E-M. And we took about 750 of those ideas, put each one on a post-it, put those on the wall down this long hallway in our office. And every day we'd pull one off and do that thing five times. So that rule of five we talked about, call five churches, call five people that could interview us on radio stations, call five uh, newspapers to see if they would interview us, call five magazines to see if we could send them an article that they would publish and at the end put excerpted from and you could buy the book, you know. So we we did everything. And the funny thing is, Trisha, we didn't we didn't hit a bestseller list until 12 months after we the book came out in July of 93. Mm-hmm. We hit the number 15 on the Washington Post, July of 94. So the main thing is most people give up too soon. They want that big. Now, mm. what's happened since then with the Internet and all these launch models and all this affiliate marketing, we could have gone a lot further faster today than we did back then. But, you know, this rule of five plus the idea, I, I love Brian Tracy's uh, quote, he calls it the law of probabilities. The more things you try, the more likely one of them will work and become a big breakthrough. And we had two big breakthroughs. One was this guy um, ran a company called Skillpath. And we asked him if he would like to sell these books. They have like 50 trainers on the road every day in these motels all over small towns like Davenport, Iowa, next later in Sioux City, et cetera. And mm-hmm. they would do trainings for secretaries and for, you know, on how to use Excel spreadsheets and how to deal with a difficult boss. And so they sold cassette albums in the back of the room. We knew that because I had a Nightingale Cone album. And so we sent him a book and said, would you sell our book? And he said, no, it's not enough profit. Um, You know, we make 30, 40 bucks on a cassette album. We only make, you know, $6 on a book. So that Wednesday, he was going into his men's uh, prayer group at his church. And he wanted to read a story to them or, you know, do something interesting. And he remembered he had our book in his briefcase. And he opens mm-hmm. up the briefcase, looks at a story like, you know, one, one of the ones we told you that made you kind of go, oh, that's really cool. And he read it to his men's group and they went, we read us another one. So he read another one. They went, you read us another one. Mm. Well, 15 stories into it, he said, maybe I should sell this book, you know. <laughs> and so literally uh. that book was getting exposure in all the places we would never show up on radio, never show up, you know, because they were small towns all across America. And that was one of the major things that really helped the book take off. Because once someone read it, the word of mouth was huge. People would tell 10 friends, buy three for their kids, buy 10 for their sales team, 
et cetera. But that's how, that was one of the things that really took it to the next level. That's incredible. I mean, to keep on going where we live in a world that, that has immediate gratification, you know, yes. it's, it's really tough for a lot of people to get through that phase of saying, I thought this would work tomorrow. I just posted it today. And I mean, it's like three days in nothing. So how do you, how do you keep going? Because you, you've done this for, for a long time uh, at a really great rate. How do you find that motivation, that passion to keep going? And I know you're doing new things to keep on doing these awesome new things. I have a question for you. Do you have a hobby, something you love to do? I do. I love what is I like, it. I like collecting Star Wars stuff. You can see. I my see background. that in the background. <laughs> I see the, the Star Trooper there. So, <laughs> you know, how do you keep going? You love to do I mean, it. I just, like, I, you know, I, love, I love it. Yeah, someone who loves to play golf, you don't say, well, yeah. how do you keep getting up every day and playing golf? So I love what I do. And I think Patty loves what she does. And, you know, it evolves over time. We do different aspects of it. But we love waking people up, helping people be as successful, uh, inspiring them. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things Patty's moved into is more working with women with her permission granted work and things like that. But it's still the same work of inspiring and empowering people to live their highest vision. I think that's what I was born to do. And so that's I, I don't have to be inspired or motivated to do it. It's just what I love. Hmm. All right. I, I like that answer. Now, what happens if you're doing something that you're passionate about, like you both have done, but it involves work that you just you're not as passionate about? How do you how do you solve for that? Because a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening in, solopreneurs are like, we love this aspect of it, but there's this other part that we're not so great at or we don't enjoy. How do you solve for that? Yeah. Well, Patty, Patty's the master at that. So I'm going to let her answer that. I hire well, Jack says. You hire well. We're not so sure <laughs> if you manage well. Um, I'm always just looking. For me, it's, you know, in the beginning, you always have to start out sort of doing everything yourself. I mean, in the beginning, I was accounting. I was marketing. I was sales. I was the office manager. All those things. But in today's world, Wait, it's... if you were all of those, what the heck was Jack doing? He was gone. Literally, I mean, <laughs> which was good and bad. I mean, but we would check in every night at five or six o'clock. Hey, to how many? He would be passing out brochures on on seats, and I'd say, "Did you get any sales days?" Like, I got this many sales. I'm like, I did this many things. I sent out this many books. So we were just, you know, going back and forth, which also I think helped keep us going because we had each other. Yeah. If either one of us kind of got down, but for me, I I'm really I know what. I'm good at at this point in my life and I know what I'm not good at. And so okay. I try to surround myself with other people that are really bright. I, I always try to be the least smart in the group and, or the weakest link in the chain. Some people would say, depending on if you're mm -hmm. in real estate or whatever you're doing and, mm -hmm. um, and just find the right people to plug in. But in the beginning we couldn't afford to really hire anyone. So I would barter with someone. I, the first person we brought in for marketing was uh, Janet Schweitzer, who wrote the Success Principles with Jack. And I met her at a Jay Abraham seminar, and I was doing a photo shoot actually for Jay's partner. We started talking. I saw how brilliant she was. And I said, I'd love for you to come in and help us. And she said, there's no way I'm going to drive an hour each way. And I happened to live near her. I said, I'll drive you every day. Every, every way. So I drove her to and from work. And then, um, and then we would barter back and forth on things. But today I use a lot of interns. I, I spent a lot of time at my son's university. I'd meet mm -hmm. with the kids. I still meet with the kids to this day. We brainstorm about different ideas. Um, and, and so I just try to plug and play in those areas. But I think the biggest thing for people is really getting clear about what they want and, and knowing what that is specifically, because sometimes we sort of go in half-baked. And one of the things that Jack has been so brilliant at is really always getting very, very clear about his vision before he shares it. And then knowing how to articulate it so he uh, can get buy-in from others. So what okay. I've learned over the years is if I have an idea that's half-baked, I go to him and then he asked me 3,000 questions and I, and then I, I figure out the answer. I used to think, I used to get defensive. He's like, no, no, no. I just want to, you know, I got to think it all the way through. And if I'm not clear, if you go 
out to other people, they won't be clear. And so it's been an, a great process to go back and forth and be able to figure that out. But interns are a great way. And, you know, also if somebody says, I have someone that says like, oh, I want to start a yoga studio. And I'll ask them, do you want to run a business or do you want to teach yoga? And so kind of dial it back a little bit with them mm. and look at, you know, where are you sure? Because the whole business is a different story. So it's just that clarity factor. I think that's really important and understanding, you know, again, what your purpose is. And our purpose is to really empower people to live their highest vision. And, and Jack's been doing it for 50 years. I've been doing it for 30. And um, so over time, you get more clear. And I also believe that with chicken soup, because it was such a huge, big deal that a lot of people see that as, oh, I'm going to write a book and then another book and another book. It's like, you can't mm -hmm. have a child and leave it in the alley when it's born. You have to raise it. And the success principles we've been working on now for, gosh, 18 years, I want to say. And we've mm -hmm. developed all kinds of programs around it. We've been, we've, we're, we train trainers around the world. We are certifying people. So we never, ever, just like chicken soup, it was another, gosh, Jack, I don't know, 18, 18 years total from the beginning of, Right. The time he said, I have an idea. And to the time we sold the company was 18 years. So you sold Chicken Soup, right? The company. Now, is the success, that the book, The Success Principles, is that something separate or is that also part of Chicken Soup? It's separate. Separate. All right. That's what I thought. And believe it or not, the very first book I read uh, from, from you was The Success Principles. And I thought... Well, this is a complete package. This is a, a, the whole thing. I mean, you don't really need to read anything else, right? So I was really surprised that it was all in one book. And I've gone back to, I mean, I have I have the book next to me. It's tabbed. It's literally tabbed, right? I can see and, that, yeah. And it has a lot of notes and I always go back to it. I'm like, this is, this is great. So I want to talk about that a little bit because... In it, you talk about believing in yourself. You really talk about the mindset and then building everything else out after, right? right. How important is, is the mind? Because we, we hear it all the time as, as people that are trying to start businesses or even, even spiritually. It's like, hey, it's all about what you're, what's in your mind. But where do we start? Because I, I hear it and I, I feel like it just falls on deaf ears all the time. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for your, your comment about the book, because that was my intention. I believe people should read more than one book, but I said if, if someone could only read one book, but they would get enough to be able to accomplish any goal they had in life, what would that be? And I wanted to write that book, which I did, which is the success principles. And um, I think, you know, the, the mindset part is critical. And I just saw a quote by Sarah Blakely recently, a woman who started Spanx, one of the first yep. women billionaires, self-made. And she talks, I don't have it memorized, but it was something like, you know, uh, work on your mindset every day. She said, mindset is the most important thing for entrepreneurs. And literally your mindset, your beliefs, the stories you tell yourself, your sense of your own um, capabilities, what you think is possible, what you expect to achieve, all of that is mindset. And if you don't have the proper mindset, then you're not going to take the proper actions. So I say, you know, success is mindset plus skill set plus action. And, you know, obviously, if you're real positive, but you don't have you've not learned how to play the piano or you haven't learned how to sell or to, you know, remodel a house and, and sell it, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, uh, you're not going to be successful. But uh, we know a lot of people with great skill sets who don't have the mindset to go out there and believe they can do it. And so nothing happens. So, you know, the first chapter in my book is take 100% responsibility for your life and your results, which means, and we were just, Patty and I were just on a mastermind group call before we came on this. This one woman said, you know, I was reading your book, The Success Principles, and I got to page 14, and it, and it said, you're either creating, promoting, or allowing your life as it is. And then she went, pow, like my head burst, you know, I realized, wow, this is like changes my whole life if I really believe that. And, and when you get that and you stop blaming, you stop complaining, you stop making excuses and you realize if it's meant to be, it's up to me. Uh, and then you, you start taking responsibility. 
you literally change the whole way you live. It's just, it's, it's radical. So that is the foundation upon which everything rests. And then the other big thing that we've been working on, Patty and I, for a long time, the last couple of years, is subconscious limiting beliefs that we all have. You know, mm. all of us have beliefs that got formed between the ages of three and eight years old, some maybe a little later. Uh, but I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. I don't count. Um, no one responds to my needs. It's not okay to make noise. It's not okay to make requests. And we don't even know we have those beliefs. And they come from something that happened to us where there was a, a strong emotional either rejection or punishment or shame, you know. And then I'm never going to do that again, you decided, right? Yeah. And so then all, you go to give a talk or make a request. And you don't know why, but you just can't pick up the phone. And it's that little part of you that's five years old that's still trying to protect you. And as I always say, and Patty and I use this metaphor a lot, if you were getting on a plane, like a 757, and you see the pilot come on board, there's a six-year-old kid in a pilot's uniform, and he climbs <laughs> into the pilot seat, how would you feel? And the answer is not so good, you know? <laughs> and yet most of us are going around with a six-year-old or a seven-year-old piloting a whole aspect of our life. So we have to bring that up and, you know, release it, replace it with a positive belief, which is part of our mindset. And once we do that, you know, Patty and I can tell you stories of people who took a seminar with us and just one belief changed. And the next year, they their 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 yearly income became their their monthly income. Mm -hmm. A yoga teacher who went from 50,000 a year to 50,000 a month teaching yoga. So what happened was so her, her belief about herself and her capacity. And what's and a lot of people are going, you can't make a half a million dollars a year teaching yoga. Well, yes, you can. But if you have that belief and then she had some childhood things as well, then you're stuck. And so literally mindset mm. is, is, is critical. That's, that's so true. And I think we, we limit ourselves here mm -hmm. in, um, there was one thing that you mentioned and I don't know, because I, I've read a lot of, of, of what you both have put out there. Uh, you talk about the negative self-talk, right? And it comes, it comes in, in different forms. And I think with what, what the world just went through with COVID, you, you really got to see that up front with a lot of people. And you got to see the greatness. And then you also got to see the really bad part, right? The, the actual suffering that people go through in their heads to just make things exponentially worse. You talk about affirmations, right? And a lot of people think, oh, that's just hocus pocus. And that's just a bunch of crap, right? But I don't, I don't believe it's a bunch of crap. I, I strongly practice it, but you both have done this at such a high level for a long time, the affirmations part. Can you go through what that looks like to you so that our audience can, can understand how it works? Because I've heard it done differently, but I want to hear it from you. Well, first of all, you gave me a good idea for a title for a book, Hocus Pocus Crap That Works. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a great article, man. NPS, I know. NPS, you get what you think about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Well, here, you know, I learned affirmations from uh, W. Clement Stone back in the, you know, what was the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. Mm -hmm. And he challenged me. He said, I want you to set a goal that's so big that if you achieve it, you'll know it's only because of what I caught, taught you that you did. So here I am making $8,000 a year, which was, you know, that was an income back then. You know, Patty talked about 25,000 when I was hiring her back 30 years ago, seemed like a lot of money to somebody. And so I said, okay, I'm going to set a goal to make a hundred thousand dollars. And part of me thought that's ridiculous. That's like 12 times more than I'm earning now. And, um, but I, I set the goal. And then he said, I want you to do this affirmation. The, the one I did then was God is my infinite supply and large sums of money come to me quickly and easily under the grace of God for the highest good of all concern as I easily earn and spend and invest $100,000 a year. Now today, having studied with Bob Proctor, who has a nice simple form, you know, I'm so happy and grateful that I'm earning $100,000 a year, much easier. But anyway, the point being, I did that affirmation every day. I put a $100,000 bill, I, I drew one and put it on the ceiling of my bed. So when I wake up in the morning, that's the first thing I'd see, close my eyes, visualize the $100,000 a year lifestyle. And within 30 days, I started having $100,000 ideas for the first time in my life. You know, basically your subconscious mind will solve any problem you give it. 
And up until then, I was only giving it an $8,000 problem to solve. How do I make this much money? Now, by affirming and visualizing $100,000, the subconscious mind begins to go, oh. And I later learned a concept called structural tension or cognitive dissonance. What that means is if I'm affirming that I'm making $100,000 a year and I'm only making $8,000 a year, my mind is not at rest. The mind likes to be at rest, homeostasis. It wants to not have tension. So what happens is it either has to give up the goal or it has to achieve the goal. Only two ways it can. So, you know, you, you grow up, you think you want to be president. And at some point you go, now nah, I'm never going to be president. And then your mind goes, okay, now we can relax. But like Bill Clinton really wanted to be president. He made that decision when he was in high school, kept believing mm -hmm. it was possible, working toward it, became the governor and so forth. And eventually it happened. So what happens is if you hold the affirmation and the visualization long enough, the belief long enough, what happens is your mind goes, okay, we get it. You're not going to stop until you get there. We'll help you figure it out. That's a little mm -hmm. bit of a metaphor, but it works that way. And so what happens is all these things kick into place. Three things happen. Number one, your subconscious mind now takes it as a command and starts getting creative, creative ideas. Number two, there's a part of your brain called the reticular system that opens up and you start perceiving things in reality that were never there. They were always there. You didn't see them. Like right now, for everyone listening to this, you're not aware of what you're feeling in your right foot. But as soon as I say right foot, you can all feel what's going on in your right foot. The reticular system in the base of your brain was filtering that out because it didn't think it was important. When you keep focusing on your goal, looking at your vision board, talking about it, visualizing and affirming it, you're programming that reticular system like the gate guard at the gate of the state to let that idea in, to let let ideas, resources, people, books, et cetera, in. Now you're seeing them you never saw before. The third thing it does is it creates motivation to take action. And there's really a fourth thing. It activates the law of attraction. Not one of those woo-woo things, but it actually works that you start attracting to you the things that will help you achieve your goal. And I would tell you just in the last day, you know, Patty and I've been running mastermind groups and coaching programs all week. Three or four people have told us stories about how they just decided they wanted something. And three days later, someone called them and said, by the way, I'd love to have you play with me about this. It's just it's like Mark Victor Hansen wrote a book once called Out of the Blue. It always feels like it's out of the blue. It's not out of the blue. It's not just an accident. Mm -hmm. It's something you created with your mind. And so if you're not intentional, you're going to create what your habits are with your mind, which is what you currently have, your mediocre, middle-class life. And so if you want to be up at the top, you have to think it where you're not there yet. And that's, the, that's how it works. You know, that's so interesting, Jack, because, or Tristan, I don't know if you know this, but I took a workshop, the only workshop I've ever taken before I met Jack. And I had one goal. It was to make 25000 a year. And I swore I'd never be a secretary. In fact, my dad said, you have to take typing in high school. And I said, I'm not taking typing. I'll have a secretary that's going to type for me. He's like, no, you're taking typing. And if I hadn't written down that $25,000 goal and really visualized it, mm. I probably would have skipped over that ad that said secretary wanted because I was so hyper-focused that that's not what I wanted to be. That I would have missed out on the $25,000, which turned out to be more. Actually, I got him to pay me 30 and then it went to about 300 and then it went to about 3 million. And so imagine if I hadn't opened up my blinders to really mm. use that work. I don't know where I'd be right now. My life would be very, very different. So it works on lots of, and it works with jewelry too. Uh, well, those women out there listening. No, that's a whole different that, podcast. <laughs> tell them that story, Patty. This is so cool. All right. So tell I was me. in, I, you might've heard this, but I was in uh, Maui. We were at the writer's conference and I was in the Rolex store in Wailea. And I, and I said to Jack, oh my gosh, I saw this Rolex. Like it's insane. It's all diamonds. It's like, you know, $65,000. And, but I would never buy it, but it was beautiful. It's like a piece of jewelry. I wasn't really a Rolex person. And he said, well, you should put it on your vision board. And he said, you know, in fact, if we ever make more than $10 million in one year, I'll buy it for you. And so I took a sticky. I said, I, Jack Canfield, will buy Patty Aubrey. And he signed it. <laughs> and it was like April 8th, uh, 2004. And okay. it was either April 4th or April 8th, 2004. On April 8th, 2008, we sold our company and I was in Maui. And so I called him and I said, he'd been sending me pictures and I had my vision board going on. I was writing out my affirmations. And I said, I have good news and great news. He's like, really? 
what's the good news? I said, the good news is you should check your Schwab account because the com- we just closed. And we almost didn't close because the economy was, you know, the world was tanking. Yeah. He said, well, what's the great news? I said, I'm at the Rolex store in Wailea. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, could I have like one day to realize that I'm that rich before I spend that much on a watch? Oh, and I said, actually, I'm going to cut you some slack and I'm going to call all my, my friends because I'm all about who do you know to get the best deal possible. I'm not going to pay retail in Wailea. And um, turns out that they didn't make that watch anymore because it had sapphires in it. So we ended up getting the one that had all diamonds. But oh. who would ever thought that I would have, you know, a <laughs> nine cool. carat diamond watch um, that... You know, I can't even see it half a time or it doesn't really tell time very well, but I wear it to remind me that anything is possible if you just believe it. And it was crazy. I mean, it was, we laugh about it. I keep trying to get him to That's buy the funny. same watch, but he just, I can't get him to that place. So I have to make a new bet with him. That's when you sell the next company, guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> too, yeah. Much, too, too much bling for me. But anyway, it's good. But, <laughs> I but love the, that. Well, look, you, you mentioned something. Patty, really quick there, and I want to dive deeper into it. You said, I reached out to some of my friends, right? And that, and the times we've talked and engaged, you have this amazing uh, sphere of awesome relationships. And you're, you're a relationship person. So can either of you tell me how you've been able to create successful relationships? Because we all need that in growing businesses and maintaining them at a high level. Well, for me... I mean, I came from my father started a vitamin company and he headed up the sales department for nature made vitamins. And so with him, I, and I learned a lot from him and it was, he always said, it's not what, you know, it's who, you know, never burn a, never burn a bridge and, you know, always be more interested than interesting. And when I met Jack, I was like, this is awesome. He knows everything and I know everybody. And so together we had a pretty good team. Um, Mm. And for me, just, I love to connect people and um, it's, I think I was born with that. And this opportunity of, of being able to be in this field and work with Jack at that level has given me the opportunity to take that probably part of my life purpose and my unique ability and really expand on it. So that's, that's kind of it for me. And I think in today's world, especially people need to understand that relationship capital. Everyone's on to the next webinar and the next launch and the next this, but it's like, pay attention to the people that are in your community, pay attention to the people that supported you from the very beginning, probably some even before you believed in yourself, they believed in you. And so I still have my very first mentors that are in their eighties that I go to when I need to talk about business or some sort of strategy or Mm -hmm. different things like that. Um, I just think it's probably the most important thing I can do. Um, and I think Jack's always kind of been right there with me. I mean, he, he cares so much that it's, it's crazy. He, he just, it's innate for him as well. Lots of times I'll see him in a training room, just working with someone so diligently on what they're doing. And at the end of the day, I'll say, that was amazing. And he'll say, what? It's like, he just channels things. So, you know, we have our different skill sets, but, um, together we make a pretty good team. Well, Jack, you mentioned something. Along the same lines here, we're staying with relationships. And I'm going back to your book here. It's This section is uh, checked off for me. It says, uh, practice uncommon appreciation. And the first thing that came to mind when I when I wrote down there, I said, oh, in exclamation marks. I'm like, oh, wow, this is, this is cool. So can you go a little deeper on that just so people understand what that means? Yeah, there's a great quote from Mother Teresa says, people are more hungry for appreciation than they are for bread. And um, the reality is that everybody craves to be noticed and to be loved and to be appreciated. And, you know, little kids come up, look what I drew, mommy. You know, they want you to take their picture, put it on the refrigerator. They want to show you the craft they made or the painting they did or whatever. And so what happens is, you know, and I think you can get beyond that. There's a certain level of maturity at some point where you have to give yourself your own appreciation so you're not dependent on others. But most people don't make that shift. And so they they crave appreciation. And so if you literally appreciate people, then they become like glued to you. They 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 love you. They they want to support you. Um, there was a study done where they were trying to get people to put uh, posters on their lawn for political candidates, and the people went, "No, I don't want to put a big you know stake 
thing, you know, sign on my lawn. Uh, they said, well, could we put a little poster in your window? And they said, well, yeah, you could do that. And then they would call him back like two weeks later and say, you know, that poster we put in your window, we really think that's making a difference. We want to appreciate you for that. And we're getting really close to the election. So thanks for contributing. And we've only got a week to go. Would you be willing to put a sign on your yawn? And almost 85 percent of the people said yes. Why? Because mm. they got appreciated for the poster in the window. So appreciation, really, really important. And if you don't appreciate people, people are always going, well, why didn't my boss appreciate me? Why didn't that person ever say thank you? You know, the biggest challenges I have is I get maybe 20 books sent to me every day saying, you inspired me to be a writer. And I always write back or I have my assistant do it. Thank you for your book. I know what a difficult challenge it is to write a book. So you've crossed that threshold. I wish you the best of everything, you know, and they remember that, you know, you've, you've noticed them, you've acknowledged them. And so, and I wasn't born this way. I was, I was, you know, Patty will tell you way back when I, I was not the greatest appreciator. And I used to have to take a three by five index card, put five little squares on it and check off every time I appreciated somebody. And often it would be like, you know, at night, like at 10 o'clock, sending out five emails, appreciating my staff or whatever. But it became more natural, became more a habit, you know? And so I work really, really strong at it. And when I forget, and I'm, and I'm not perfect, you know, Patty will write me and say, send Andrea a thank you note. You know, she really put together <laughs> that, that thing for the thing. Because sometimes I don't even know what my staff did that went above and beyond because Patty knows more about what they're doing. And that reminds me to thank them. Then I'll get back this five paragraph letter, you know, oh, it's a great working for you. And I'm so happy. And thanks for acknowledging me. And so it really, it matters. All right. So on that, and either of you can take this one. This is kind of like on the side, but how important is uncommon appreciation in a relationship, like a spouse, a boyfriend, girlfriend, or just in any relationship that involves that type of a bond? Well, I'll, I'll start with just one of the things that I've had to learn painfully over the last 30 years is how to appreciate the differences and I think, you know, you get into a relationship and you are perfect or you try to be perfect. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to scale that because it's not really humanly possible. So it's really focusing on the parts of that person that you love, focusing on the parts of that person that is your is genius about them, focusing on the good parts. And, and I think even Jack and I've had to learn that with each other. I mean, in the beginning, it was he was the boss and I was the assistant. And then, you know, over 30 years, you have these tug of wars like you should be more like me. I should be more like you. I'm like, hey, I have an idea. Why don't we just appreciate each other's brilliance and the areas that we are and together we'll do better. And, it, and you know, we had to run chicken soup and we couldn't blow that up. We had partners there and a publisher. And if it did, it would be it would go away. So we worked really hard with business consultants and mm. going away and doing three day strategy meetings three or four times a year staying really clear about our values and our vision and what that was. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's ups and downs, but when you can just remember and focus on that good part, that's, that's huge because that's what you got there. That's how you got there in the beginning. Most of the time, I, I think, especially if it's a couple, I know for me, my husband, I have to really focus on, he's totally grounded. He's been there for the kids. He's totally mm -hmm. consistent. He's everything. I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm the workaholic and I'm pie in the sky. So um, not <laughs> expecting him to be pie in the sky with me mm -hmm. took a while, you know, and in fact, took way too long on lots of levels for um, for that. And I think you grow up and you learn that. I don't know what Jack would add, but that's that's a huge one, Tristan. I mean, the sooner people can learn that the world would work so much effort, more effortlessly. Yeah, I'll just add to that and then say one more thing. That, that what happens, most people marry someone thinking this guy or this guy is a pretty good catch. Just one or two things I need to change about him, then they'll be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll often say in my seminars, tell the truth. How many of you felt that about your husband or your wife? And they all raise their hand. Then I say, now put your hand up again if you've been able to get them to change that. No hands go up, you know. So you have to learn to love the person the way they are mm. and to see what their strengths are. And to realize you're not going to get all your needs met from one person anyway. You know, maybe your wife's not going to be the funniest person in your life, but you're, you got a guy friend you go bowling with who is funny. You know, you get it met there. So the second thing mm. is that I remember being on Oprah when The Secret came out and she did what she called an after show where I think it went on cable TV, but not like 
ABC, CBS, NBC, whatever the channel was that she was on at the time. And then we did Q&A with the audience. And this one audience person stood up. It was a couple from the South, I remember. And she said, oh, God, my husband and I, we just used to fight all the time. We were talking about getting divorced. I read The Secret uh, or saw the movie. Well, I don't remember which one it was. And she said, talked about focus on the good things. Talk about the good things. Appreciate the good things. So every day in his lunchbox, I would put a little note. I really love what a great dad you are. I really appreciate how you helped with the dishes last night. I really love the way you played games with Sally last night before mm. she went to bed. I was really moved when you were reading that story or when you took the dog, out. whatever it was, every day. And she said, within three weeks, we were so in love with each other. It was unbelievable. All of a sudden, wow. he felt appreciated instead of judged, trying to be changed, all of that. So appreciation can change everything. All right. So on that, going from a relationship like that to a partnership in business, both of you have done this, right? There's a lot of bit, there are a lot of companies out there that that just fall apart because the the partnerships fall apart. They just can't work with each other. What would that look like for for a successful partnership to continue to evolve? What does that What does that look like to you? You want well, me to answer that, or you want to answer that? I'll start by saying, you know, as, as Patty said, we've had our challenges. You know, uh, there were times when you know we would yell at each other, and I mean, we just would. You know, she would always come up with this idea of something new to do. And it was a great idea, but I just could see all the stuff I was going to have to do to make it happen. And I used to yell, you're killing me, you're killing me, you know, <laughs> and um, but and, and then, you know, even this year, you know, she'll write me a, an email every once in a while and say, by the way, it would be valuable if you appreciate me every once in a while, you know, because sometimes I will take her for granted. You know, you get into a good mm. space and then you forget. You know, it's like when you're you're sick okay. and the doctor says you need to take these vitamins and exercise and don't eat any sugar and you do it yeah. and then you feel good. And when you feel good, you stop for you forget to do the things that got you to feel good because you feel good. You know, yeah. and so sometimes, you know, and, and we're human, I will forget sometimes. Uh Patty will remember me, but my my wife will remind me, you know, whatever, someone will. And and I do better than I used to. And I'm still not perfect. And we apologize to each other. We ask each other for what we need. We tell each other what we want. We say what we're not willing to do. We call mm -hmm. each other on our BS, you know. Um, and now we're open to receiving that. Whereas before, I think I used to feel defensive and judged, you know, because that was me growing up in my family. But once I let that go, it's we, we get along really well now. You could have also said you could have felt attacked and belittled because I wasn't very graceful. <laughs> but, but I think the biggest thing about that too is, yeah, asking for what you want and being really clear about that looks like and um, having those crucial mm -hmm. conversations and knowing when something's off. You know, if I, I'm, I pretty much, we know each other so well, but in the old days, I might like walk on eggshells around, oh, am I in trouble? Did I piss them off? And now I just call and say, hey, did something bad happen today and you're in a bad mood? Should I take this personally? Is there something we need to talk about? And they go, oh God, no, sorry. That, you know, totally had nothing to do with you. But I, when I was younger, I would sweat through those moments, always thinking it was me because I went to Catholic school and was always in trouble for something. <laughs> so now I have a necklace that says, not sorry. And I just inquire within. And so, um, yeah, <laughs> if you just learn over time on how to do it, you know, it's like, or I'll, I'll, we'll get in the car together and I'll get in the fast lane and I'll lock the doors and go about a hundred and say, so I have a story. <laughs> He's like, oh no. <laughs> I'm surprised Jack didn't say, wait a second, that's a great title for a book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my wife is so sick of me saying that's a great title for a book. <laughs> uh, we have lots oh. of titles for books, but yeah. I don't know if we're ever, ever going to see the light of day. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, I have one more question for you. Maybe another one if it creeps in there. But you both are doing now something different, but along the same lines, right? Coaching, masterminding. What is it that you're deeply involved in right now that's exciting to you? I oh. think. Well, go ahead, Patty. Well, 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 no. What were you going to say? I want to see the same. I want to see if we're excited on the same level. This is a test. 
Well, there's a lot of things I'm excited about, but the thing I think that drives our company and us the most is we've been training trainers all around the world to teach our work. We now have about 3,500 certified trainers, about five or 600 of those are live. They came to like three week or two week live programs and the rest are online certified. And we just finished a program last week with about 50 people uh, from, I think it was like six or seven countries involved and. So that's that's kind of the, the big thing. And, and I'll just drop down a second and say one of the things that's kept us together all these years is we have the same why. You know, we the, the, what drives us, what gets us through, you know, is a purpose. And and so what's been our breakthrough goal or our big, hairy, audacious goal, some people call it your BHAG, is to uh, take this work out into all the places it normally wouldn't get to, into the prisons, into the schools, into the corporations, into the hospitals, into the you know, third world countries, into the tribes of Africa, et cetera. And all that stuff's happening in little dribs all over the world. And so that's really, really exciting. Uh, Patty and I are both working on books all the time still. And uh, we love our coaching that we're doing. We've got a big training coming up that we're doing uh, in, in the end of April. That's a three-day training. First time we've ever been able to, as people may have heard, like Tony Robbins did a training where he had 40,000 people you know, online who are working with the same company that can put thousands of people on this yeah. massive Zoom call. They've got this, all this technology. So mm-hmm. that's a little stretch for us, but we're really excited about doing it. And um, and I'm I'm excited because I won't be sitting in front of a computer. I'll be actually be standing on a stage. Ah. I think my legs my legs are starting to atrophy, you know, <laughs> from just being doing that's Zoom funny. calls and summits all day long, you know. But True. that's that that's what's up for me. I'm curious, Patty. What would you say? I was going to say the same thing. I'm at this new three day event where we're speaking literally in a ballroom to cameras and television screens which is a little outside of our comfort zone in a shorter period of time and having to keep people really engaged. Typically, if you come to Breakthrough to Success, where everything is partners and breaking you into groups and very, very interactive. So learning how to create that interactivity online, which we've done really well up until now. Uh, I think we did a good job at pivoting, which is an old word, and we neither, neither one of us ever want to hear it again, really. I should stop saying it. Um, but it's exciting to see, and, and I think just having, Having all of the trainers that when Jack and I were in the Middle East and I had this vision, I'm like, what if we could bring this work all around the world that no one ever had to leave? And so now that we have all these online versions of things, we we had a guy last week in our training who is a, he runs a bunch of parole officers. And so his new thing is you're going to lose your funding if you can't coach your parole officers to be coaches. And I was like, great. We have this online course. I'm going to, you know, we can give you 10 logins because you're in part of our mastermind elite group and it'll make a huge difference. And then you don't have to reinvent the wheel and then you can coach them in between because now you're a Canfield certified teacher and we can get further faster and it's very exciting. And so things like that, just having people really show up and speak up and have the confidence to do that, know that it's not going to happen overnight. They're not going to be Jack Canfield overnight. Um, don't compare yourself. Anybody listening? I tried it for a long time. It's like death. He's he's a master at teaching, um, but it's so beautiful to see all of these people that whether they're in the classroom or they're in that prison or wherever they are, they're making a huge difference. And at the end of the day, that's what I think. That's what really keeps both of us going at the level that we go. All right, I'll I'll ask Veronica to send us the link to that, and we'll post it into the podcast uh, links below. Cool. All right. So with that, I've learned a lot from both of you. The times we've talked, it's been super fun, by the way. I love the stories. The story aspect of this is is fun and crazy. (laughs) Uh, I love your energy. And with that, I want to know, last question for both of you, and this could be super quick. Who has impacted your life the most and why? Either one of you could go first. I'm waiting for Patty. All right. So I have <laughs> to Patty, it's your turn first. Because he knows I have to say Jack Canfield impacted <laughs> my life the most. That's not fair. Because I met him at 24 and I was a ballet girl with big hair and long red nails. And God knows I could be anywhere right now. Um, and honestly, he put up with me as I was growing up and my wild years and my craziness and all the different things. So, and I learned so much and I am so grateful for that. No pressure, Jack. 
Jack. Well, you know, it, normally when you ask me a question like that, you expect someone to say, you know, Zig Ziglar, Napoleon Hill, Tony Robbins, uh, you know, whatever, Martin Luther King, you know. Yeah, something. Uh, but it's true that in, in one way, Patty, if I hadn't met her and her ability to do the things I don't do well and her ability to push me to be the best I can be, I would have to say I would not be where I am. I would never have written the Success Principles book. It was really her idea. That she said, you need to put all this stuff in a book. Uh, it was her idea to develop our train the training program, which is the thing I'm most passionate about now. And as far as like, you know, people that were my mentors along the way, there were so many. I mean, W. Clement Stone, probably the first guy that really made me wake up and realize there was more to life. You could I could actually become impactful, make a difference, earn a lot of money, um, you know, that uh, wealth and success were not a four letter word. I mean, I grew up in a family in West Virginia where rich people were someone who'd screwed people over. That was our belief. You know, <laughs> you, know you don't want to be one of those people. No. And um, so and that's how my dad justified not having money. Right. Um, so but there were a lot of people along the way, just so many. But I would say Stone was the first one. And Jesse Jackson kind of revolutionized my idea that you could empower people in poverty. I learned from him. I went to his church in Chicago for a number of years. That was quite profound for me. Um, you know, I worked for a company called Insight Training Seminars. The guy that ran that taught me how to do large group trainings. So all along the way, there have been different teachers that said, you can do more. This is possible. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful for them. If you read the uh, acknowledgments in my success principles book. Mm -hmm. There's probably about 30 names of people like that mm -hmm. who are the trainers I had, the therapists I work with, the uh, people that wrote the books that changed my life. And people often ask me, you know, if you, it, what's the, if you could share just one success principle that everyone should do, what would it be? And I always answer by saying, if you could keep only one organ in your body, which one would it be? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is you need all of them, you know? So I needed all of those people along the way, including Patty, to make my life be what it became. I love that. How do you two maintain the same why? Because when you said that, it was a big aha for me. How do you do that? I think it evolves over time. You know, it, it just, we started teaching teachers the same work now that we're teaching humans of all, all walks of life and get certified to go teach it out into different areas. I think the body, the main body of the work, which is the success principles that Jack had aggregated, we used all those principles to build chicken soup and we're the first brand to hit over a billion dollars in the, you know, self-help uh, nonfiction side. And so if we could do it, so Whoa. can you. And that's sort of, and, you know, I think our why is like, for me, a little bit more of my why now is really getting women out there and empowering them to speak up. It was really mm -hmm. easy for me to hide behind Jack and Mark for a long time and not kind of own my piece of it. And I say, if I had been a man five years older, I would have been the co-author, not Mark Richard Hansen. I just didn't have the idea three quarters of the way through the book. So, <laughs> so my job now is to really have people own that and get clear and, and ask what they want. And, um, I don't know. I, I just, that's, that's a weird answer. Maybe I, I, I didn't even know my purpose until I met Jack and I didn't even really get it probably for the first 10 years in. And I, I think too, Tristan for marriages, you know, if marriages have a common why it could be the kids, it could be, you both care about environmental sustainability. It could be you, you both love to travel, but when there's some mm -hmm. common purpose that you have together, mm -hmm. that can get you through the rough times. You know, it could be your religion, could be your beliefs, could be you follow a certain spiritual teacher, whatever it is, but something that transcends the day to day, you know, mm -hmm. and that when you have that, then it, 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 supports you through the difficult times. You know, why am I doing this? Why am I sitting here in a trench in a desert? Well, because I'm an American and I want to keep freedom in our country, you know, or why am I here in Africa in the middle of a rainstorm? Because I believe in empowering children through education, you know, whatever it is, that belief will give you that why that purpose, you know, Napoleon Hill said the first thing toward the achievement of success is having a, a, a strong desire that something is going to drive you through the difficult times. If you don't have a goal and something you're working toward, then what happens is when it gets difficult, you just give up. And a lot of people, you know, we see over half the marriages end in divorce because there's no, nothing sustaining it. 
It sounds like the why or the reason that you're the, the, that same purpose is something that evolves too. It could evolve, right? Depending yes, on what it, it can. is. It certainly can. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, honestly, it, to be honest, in the very beginning, Jack, I would push Jack to increase his fees. And he's like, I don't want to do that. I just want to make a difference. I'm like, great. I just want to make money. So together we'll be better. <laughs> and, I said, and then you had to transform me in from shallow to like this conscious being, but uh, that's a joke. But you know, my why did change in the beginning. It was about the money. And over time it became about making a difference. His was always, you know, he's 20 years past my time too. So uh, I had to catch up. It makes sense. Well, thank you both. Thank you both for being on. I love it. It's a great information. I loved asking you the questions and hearing the answers. That was the best part. So thank you for this. And hopefully we can do this again in some form because I, I love having you on together. It's just so dynamic. Just having both of you on hearing similar stories, a similar angle, but slightly different. It's really cool, by the way. Thanks. Just wanted to give you that. So thanks, Jack. Thanks, Patty. TC, that's a wrap. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it. <laughs>